Welcome to The Conscious Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Alex Raymond. This is the only podcast that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. Now, I know that being an entrepreneur is a long journey and it can be really tough. So on this show, we won't be sharing generic hero stories or talking about mythical unicorns. Instead, we'll get straight to the heart of what matters most, giving you tools and resources to grow, thrive, and succeed as an entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with incredible founders, CEOs, coaches, and authors to help you be more resilient and inspired as you build the business of your dreams. What does it mean to bring your whole self to work? You know, there's a lot of companies that ask you to do that. Are you doing that in a way that's in alignment with your values? Are you doing it in a way that is consistent with the support systems you've built for yourself, both internally and externally. These are some of the questions that we're going to be answering today in my conversation with Miru Kim. I met Miru at the Wisdom 2.0 conference in San Francisco in April 2023. We had a great connection. She came out to the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit in Boulder in June of this year. And, you know, I find her such a deep thinker and I really enjoyed talking with her about what it's like to work for big companies like Apple and Facebook and Microsoft and what it's like to go out there and be a solopreneur and blaze her own trail. So really fascinating conversation all around how we show up for ourselves. Welcome back to The Conscious Entrepreneur, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Miru, great to have you here. Good to see you. Good to see you too. So you are the founder and CEO of People and Culture, and you mm -hmm. have been in San Francisco, Silicon Valley for a long time. You've been mm -hmm. with really big, fancy companies like Apple and Microsoft and uh, Facebook or Meta, mm -hmm. as it's now called, and, and you've had a lot <laughs> yeah. of really interesting roles. And I wanted to start out the conversation because I know that it's a big deal to work at those companies, right? And there's a, there's right. a lot of... Uh, prestige, there's a lot of interesting projects, there's a lot of really fun stuff that, that you can work on. Obviously, also fairly high-stress environments, as we know. And I noted that you talked about an episode uh, that you had coming back on the bus from work one day uh, and basically breaking down and crying the entire time as you were traveling from your office to, to, your, to your home. Yeah. Um, and that was a major inflection point for you in in your career and how you think about yourself. And and tell me what you learned about yourself. Tell me what was going on for you and tell me how that helped them to reshape how you were spending your time and energy. Thank you. Wow. You're bringing me to the dark place right away from get-go. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. So that was like, I remember that there was a time when I was commuting on a, our commuter bus um, from uh, Meta campus, the Facebook campus uh, in Menlo Park to San Francisco. And I remember that actually the context was I was coming out of a meeting, the big meeting with uh, the product lead about the product that I was working together with. And, uh, and there, there, it was a kind of everything. Uh, it wasn't, it was a tone of the meeting. It was uh, what we were talking about. And then, uh, but, but that was more superficial. I think what was underneath was that um, there were a lot of sort of incivility in terms of how we were behaving to each other. And I constantly felt that for the hurt uh, at workplaces and 
And also maybe I had to behave in the same way so that I can kind of toughen up and be strong against other people, but that's not how I want it to be. So I think that was a kind of more more direct kind of a reason why, what made me kind of really break down and cry. But at the same time, there were more fundamentally like deeper reason too, that I wasn't sure whether I was doing the right thing for myself. Like there was a lot of questions internally. And um, there were also kind of personal thing that um, I, I had a history of depression too. So there was another thing that also coming in very deep, deeply from internally uh, inside me too. So it was kind of a, everything kind of came together on, and it was basically, I was having a really bad day, so to speak. And then it just kind of made me break down on the, the shuttle. And I feel bad for the person who was sitting next to me because you probably had no idea why this woman is kind of crying the, all the way. Um, and yeah, and that was actually when I thought, felt that um, I need to do something about kind of my environment, uh, meaning that I was already practicing my meditation uh, and I was getting therapy, right? And I also was um, doing all kinds of sort of self-hack that I should do myself to make me feel good. Yet when I came to work uh, or when I interact with people that, you know, it kind of, everything kind of gets offset <laughs> no matter what I do. So that's when I realized that maybe, and it's not that it's, it's no one's fault. It's no individual's fault. It's not necessarily the, the fault of the product lead or it's not the fault of the, my team, but it's almost like um, people, uh, there was no support system at work to actually meet these kind of individual sufferings that are so present all the time. So how can I actually have the culture around me that can meet my suffering and also other people's suffering in a better way? That was really what kind of start, started me off with uh, uh, with my journey, basically. And yeah, so I'll, I'll pause there if you have any other questions that you want to ask. So until that time, you were doing, I guess I would just call it like, quote unquote, like a normal job, meaning, you know, you 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 had you had yeah. your responsibilities, you were sort of doing stuff. And then after that, you got really involved in the mindfulness at work uh, mm-hmm. uh, projects and mindfulness at work themes. Right. So so was it was that the, the specific yeah. inflection point where you're just like, all right, enough of this. I've had enough uh, and I need to change. And what was the process like to take, you know, at a big company like like Facebook, Meta, what was the process like to introduce these topics and, and to, to wind up supporting mindfulness at work initiatives? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was the moment that, that I should do something. And um, I got really involved in the mindfulness at Meta. So that's an employee-run grassroots uh, club. And uh, we we it was a very small club at the time. But then um, also what I wanted to do was that how to... It's not, it's not enough to just to individual practice. How can you practice together? How can you learn these concepts together? How can you learn how to be compassionate to each other better? And so I, I signed up for this uh, training that I can actually bring to work at Meta. So, uh, so some of the trainings I got, uh, trained was search inside yourself that was developed at Google and then compassion cultivation training that was developed at Stanford. And I started offering that in, as part of this mindfulness club activity program. Um, so it was, um, and I was still doing my part-time, uh, my full-time job, right? My full-time job as a business development manager. And it, it was really out of this desperation that there's got to be a way um, because so many people are spending so much time at work and we cannot keep going like this. And I assume that there are a lot of people who are like me who are suffering the same way. So, so and I was correct. I, I, in, that, in the process of offering the program through the Mindfulness Club, and um, I met a lot of them who are secretly suffer, suffering, but not showing. They were putting this facade that I'm okay. 
Um, and then I care about my career. I want to get promoted and I want to make this much money. I want to be a director, VP at the, the certain, that there were those people, but then sickly they're dying, so to speak, you know, in a kind of dramatic way. And I met a lot of them. I remember one time uh, running um, as part of the mindfulness club, we were running the meditation um, weekly. We're offering it and any, anybody could come. It was a walk-in and we would do it like in a meeting table, right? We're not cross-legged sitting, uh, but there will be some guided guidance too. I remember one time the one person came in. I have never met that person before. He came in and he sat and then I guided the meditation at the time. And he started like crying, sobbing. Um for 30 minutes. And then after that, we had a, we usually have a kind of little talk, chat, uh, but he said, basically, I really needed that today. I needed to be, um, I needed to be kind of received and to be spacious. So thank you. And he left and he didn't come back for that after that, but you know, it kind of was an example that everybody's suffering, right? Everybody's going through something. And you say, we say at work at the time, Meta, that people say, bring your whole self to work. If you expect people to and tell people to bring whole self to work or authentic self to work, there's got to be a system that actually really can contain them, contain that whole self. And because whole self contains all that suffering, you know, from the previous, the, the personal life and all that too, right? So, so yeah, it, it, so kind of long story short, basically from that point and uh, onward was a five years of journey of offering these programs and growing this community too. And the community was like very small, like 800 people maybe in the beginning. And then uh, throughout the COVID, especially during the pandemic, it grew a lot because the suffering was so immense. So it ended up being like 3,000 people community over uh, four years of time frame. So it was it was a huge, um, it was just so remarkable to see that there are so many people who are feeling the same way and they're willing to actually practice together. And, and then there are a lot of actually, th- their needs are, their suffering to be met uh, in in that way was actually really, um, yeah, it was there, and then we were able to meet that their suffering too. So, um, and personally, what what they really taught me was that um, I was able to actually do my full time job and doing that successfully, and it wasn't too much work. You might think that oh, I was a do, do kind of a dual job, and then it's more stressful. It wasn't more stressful. It was less stressful. And that was something that kind of a, I, I still take it with me wherever I go, like some sort of a personal transformation that, oh, when I have that kind of a, well, sense of well-being, not just within myself, but also with other people around me in the community, it just carries me away. Uh, it supports me so much. So um, that was the, inter- the support system that I experienced. And I was work- driving it with my professional career, getting promoted like three times in a row during the time. I didn't, I, I didn't focus on that. That was my focus, to be honest. And then, um, and then I was, and then the people around me were, so to speak, getting the sense of well-being and we were able to kind of work better and then also live better too together. So yeah, so that was basically a summary of uh, what happened after that. Cry on it's- the bus. <laughs> it's so cool to be able to link back, you know, your your professional success with the personal work that you do and, and to be able to say, you know, yeah, because of the stuff I was doing, I actually, it didn't feel like an extra job. It, I felt more relaxed, even though I was technically, I assume you were doing more work. There was more mm-hmm. hours spent at, mm-hmm. uh, at the office, but you're still able to feel relaxed and therefore get more done, be more accomplished. And, you know, a lot of people don't, 
link those. They don't understand. They, they, they see it as a trade-off. It's I'm either yeah. doing the mindfulness thing or I'm this hard-nosed professional, but I can't do both. And one of the things that we talk about a lot at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit, for example, is not only can you do both, you have to do both. Yes. And so you're, you're like a living example of that. And it blows my mind that there were 3,000 people at Facebook in this, uh, in this mindfulness club. So obviously it's a big deal touching a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And I cannot, I, I cannot agree with you more about that. We have to do it and it's not good to have. Uh, it's not something that you do it when you have time. It's so necessary. And for the entrepreneurship too, I'm, I'm learning that like as we go every day, like, oh, this is like, this support system is so necessary. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking that it's a lived experience and I felt the experience that I, I can actually really remember and then really feel. So that's something that I try to remember and remind myself too. Well, that's, that's important. And, and I know that you call yourself a uh, quote unquote rookie solopreneur. Uh, so having left the big cushy confines of, of tech companies like Apple, Microsoft and, and Facebook and now doing things on your own. So what's that like? You know, what was that transition like for you? And what are you learning now about yourself in the entrepreneurial role? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And also it's a question that I keep asking myself and I have new answers every day too. Uh, it's, it's not easy. Uh, but also it wasn't easy to work in the big corporate. One thing that wasn't easy is that, that kind of sense of, um, when I didn't have that support system, when I didn't identify it. And, um, then I, because when I look back my corporate career, 20 years of, uh, you know, Apple, Meta and Microsoft, I don't think I lived, uh, through that most of the career, um, with the, any support system. I didn't have an internal support system until later. I didn't also explicitly think about this external support system too. Um, so, but then I was kind of living by the agenda that was kind of given to me, imposed on me and that I, took without thinking consciously thinking too much whether that's actually for me or not um and so 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 that was difficult part and then entrepreneurship right now um i'm trying to be conscious and that's why i really loved your summit because it just was a reminder it was a great reminder great, good practice with the like-minded people about what it means to be conscious entrepreneur and as i'm trying to do it there are a lot of things that i took for granted at being in the corporate right a lot of support, infrastructure and a lot of Things I need to kind of, uh, I didn't have to think about. Now I have to think about it too. Um, so it's a, uh, it's, it's difficult in that way, but then it's more fulfilling because I feel, I feel so aligned with the work that I'm doing now. I get to spend 100% of my time on the things that I really care about. So that part is really awesome. I think one of the biggest learning lately has been the measure of success. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, I noticed that I was, until recently, I was actually tra- applying the same measure of success that I was applying to myself uh, when I was at corporate to my entrepreneurship too. Meaning that, oh, you know, and I, I have a business plan too, right? So I have a certain target. But then as I look at it, that I, if I don't meet the business target on a certain time, then, you know, it looks like a failure. But then that's usually how I would view my career at Meta like being a certain level or uh, getting a certain kind of a salary or compensation um, or how to see my project kind of moving. That was kind of a level measure of success that I had in Meta that was given to me too again. But now I'm realizing that I cannot apply the same level uh, measure of success because 
the reason I chose entrepreneurship over the, that my corporate job was to be working on the things that I feel really aligned with. So then the measure of success should actually reflect that. Um, I cannot just, I cannot just ignore that, that, um, the satisfaction that comes from living in alignment with uh, working in alignment with my values, thinking that that's good to, good to have. Um, and then the kind of, a, um, taking it out of the, this measure of success too. So I need to actually include that as part of the measure of success. So having realized that I now feel like, Oh, I get to remind myself that why I decided to do this, first of all, and um, also being able to kind of uh, evaluate my work uh, in a more fair way, fair way. So I might not be able to make the money that I was making, to be honest, I guess, in terms of pure income uh, compared to Meta. Um, but does that mean that actually the, my entrepreneurship is a failure as a result of that? It's not, right? Because um, I get to have a dissatisfaction from working on alignment with my values. Um, so I need to really factor that into this measure of success. So that's something that I'm kind of, a, I, I got recently realized and then kind of reset how I, my expectations um, and then really balance it out with my intention. Yeah, the measure of success is is critical. And uh, I'll just mention as a side note, you would not be the first entrepreneur to sit there and ask yourself, <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? Why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah. Can I go back? Can I just go yeah. back to the big company? Uh, I think every entrepreneur asks themselves that, you know, probably on a fairly re- recent, uh, a frequent basis. Uh, but in terms of, you know, how you're measuring success, can you put a dollar on a dollar amount on uh, yeah. living in alignment with your values? Can you put a dollar amount on the work that you're doing being fulfilling? Can you put a dollar value on the fact that, you know, you are the one who is, you know, success or failure? For example, yeah. so responsibility; yeah. those are all critical elements of it as well. So, what else have you seen on the on the measurements of success? So, so it's not so much spreadsheet based as it used to be, I guess, huh? Yeah, it's not. But also, I, I mean, I, I, my one of my job as a business development uh, professional was that also kind of quantifying and then thinking about the the goals and and the quantifying the goals too. And I mean, it, it will show up in many different ways that how I feel. Um, how much I feel healthier, uh, n- not just mentally, but also s- emotionally and also the and physically. Um, it, the way to quantify is that probably the medical bills that would come out of it too, or the amount of money I spent on massage, thinking that there's a problem with my muscle, but actually the problem was with my inner inner being. Um, so there are a lot of ways to quantify. So I, I'm, I'm happy to do that too. But yeah, I think a lot of it is actually un- unmeasurable in a way. Um, and I think that's why when I look at the system um, in the corporate system in the kind of cultural well-being, that's not being even though everybody understands that's important, but n- nobody is really prioritizing it in the system system-wise too. Um, there is a book called The Good Life. I think it was based on the the longest longitudinal longitudinal study by Harvard um, that tracked the person's life. I think it was like four hundred uh, people. They tracked the entire life and then trying to really understand what, what were the components of the good life, right? And then I think that the learning was that it's a relationship uh, that's really critical for the good life. We all know this. There is no one who doesn't know it. We know that the, the secret to success, uh, the secret to happiness is good relationship, a meaningful kind of work and all that. But when you actually see people around, it, there are not many people who are actually practicing it. 
and why is because that these are uh, measure of success, um, uh, feeling, feeling kind of a having the satisfaction that you come have from the good relationship, uh, things like that are not really measurable, so to speak, quantifiable. And then as a result, we kind of take that out from the evaluation. So I don't know if the answer is to, to quantify it necessarily. Maybe that's one way. But the other thing is that to really proactively think about how do I take that as part of my value, self-evaluation of the life or work, um, and create our own kind of measure of success. And, um, instead of kind of adopting what, what was given to us. So I think personally, the big learning is that I need to think about the measure of success in my context because it, it it's, it's my, my situation is different from other people. Um, and then really, uh, not take other measure of success as given. What I remember from that book, The Good Life, is that your life satisfaction at age 80 is roughly determined by how invested and committed you were to your relationships at age 50, if I mm. remember that correctly. Meaning yeah, that's right. these things are they're cumulative. And so over time, uh, you know, it, it builds on itself. You can't just turn around at age 75 and say, hey, I want to be happy. I'm going to start, you know, building relationships because it's much harder to do at that point. And so exactly. if you're doing it and you're building a habit around it and you're investing your time and energy in those relationships, then it does really help you uh, in that, in that stage of, in that stage of life. Uh, so exactly. yeah, I remember that. That was a really, that was a really cool uh, book about relationships and it's a really, really interesting study. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now you've mentioned uh, internal support system and yeah. external support system a couple of times. Uh, do me a favor and define what you mean. And on top of your definition, like where you see people trip up when it comes to these concepts. Yeah. So this was kind of a, also kind of lesson from a lesson that I learned hard way <laughs> through the failure of my own too. Um, so internal support system, I define it as, um, so the, the support system, the concept, I actually thought about it after, um, encountering James Clear, the atomic habits. And when people read that book, they focus on the habit and habit building. But actually what I what really caught my eyes was the system because he, he, I think he takes an example of the Olympic athletes, right? So if you go to Olympic athletes, let's say track game, there are eight track runners. There are, um, and only like three of them will win the medal. If they're, if you're an Olympic level athlete, then you're top of the class, right? In the world. And, um, and they have all the same goal. They want to win the medal. That's why they're in Olympics too. But why, what makes the three out of the eight people actually win the medal? It's not because of the goal, right? It's because of the system. And I, I think that was really important. We are so living in a so, such a goal driven culture that we don't think about how support this system is so critical. So that's when I started really actively thinking about what, what is my support system? Uh, what is my system around that really, um, it helps supports me to live the life in the way I want and the work in the way I want. And I realized that there are internal and external. Internal is for me is the kind of taking care of my inner being, which is a, a lot about the contemplative practices that I do. And for me personally, learning is very important value. So. So that I can keep, uh, keep satisfying the needs for growth. So the contemplative practice and, and learning are two important parts of the support system for me internally. And then, um, external support system, I define it as, um, you can think of it as a community, but basically the external kind of a uh, people or the thing that can actually remind us 
of the values that, that are really important to us and also helps us stay resilient in the, in the, in the face of hardships. And so those are the, could be the friends network, could be family network, or in the work context, it could be collaborators or the workers or mentors. So, um, so that's the important part. And I do, uh, in my program that I actually uh, offer, that I actually suggest to the entrepreneurs to, to do two things. One, in terms of external support system, one is that create your own board of directors. So, you know, you have board of directors for your business, but for you personally, create, create that, that too. And these people would be group of people who really care about you, but who are not necessarily invested in your kind of success, uh, directly, but they really care about you. So meet with them. Um, every quarter, like you're doing the board of meet, uh, board meetings for your company. But if the, the business in this context will be you and then kind of set the agenda and ask them for a feedback that are not, uh, that are not invested in their own interests too. Um, that are open and very honest. Right. So that's one thing that I, uh, one of the things that, um, I asked, I actually, um, suggest the entrepreneurs to do as, as part of the external support system. And I do have that too. Uh, as a, my, my board of directors are, changing to sometimes, but they're always there. And then uh, it's so, it feels so amazing that, yeah, I have people that I can go back to and ask for that kind of a, their advice. And I don't have to take it necessarily, but, um, you know, it's, it's just so immensely helpful. And so what's the other part of the external support system? You said, go find your own board of directors. And you said there was another one? Yeah, there's another one that I call coaching circle. And the name could be different too, but it's a basically a circle of people who are in the same field, um, who, who, who are kind of, who can commiserate together at the same time, who can support each other. But then the rule is not necessarily to solve each other's problem. It's actually to really be there and to be compassionate to each other, um, uh, and then coach each other basically. So, um, any, I think people have it, uh, one way or another, um, through their friends network or through the collaborators too. Uh, whatever they might be, it's really important to have that coaching circle. And, um, in the, in my program, I actually ask them to formalize a little bit by, you know, kind of making sure that you meet regularly so that you can keep going. Um, and then there are certain agenda that I ask them to think about. Like, again, it's not about solving anybody's problem, but really being there for each other, being present. Um, so that's really important point about the coaching circle too. So I think I have coaching circle in various forms now in my, in my career and in my personal life as well too. Yeah, the, the coaching circle is so interesting because as professionals and as entrepreneurs, we're always wanting to jump in and solve problems. Oh, <laughs> I hear this, you know, and I want to bring in my experience and show you how smart I am and, you know, solve the problem. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like when you're an entrepreneur and you're going out raising money and meeting with VCs and, yeah. you know, you, you present your business and then they ask you questions that, you know, they're not dumb questions, but they're very surface questions. And, and, and yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah, man. Like I've thought about that 150 times, like, but thank you for <laughs> the question. And so it's, it's a little bit the same way. Like sometimes it, so, so with a peer group or coaching circle, you just need people to listen because yeah. you've thought through everything, you know, the pros and cons and so on. And just having people around to reflect back or help you find your blind spots in your thinking, as opposed to actually solving the content of the problem it's more like what's the context here and <laughs> how are we how are we working and, and how are we how are we operating i've always gotten tremendous value out of those kind of things and and it's, exactly. you know, it's groups like eo ypo vistage 
you know, those things can do a really good job with it. Uh, and, you know, I've done my own in the past, but we would sometimes forget the no advice thing and we'd jump into problem solving mode. And then, you know, the funny thing is once when we did that, everybody would feel less satisfied about the meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. So everybody feel when we jump into like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go do this. Everyone would sort of be like, yeah, it was okay. The meeting was okay. As opposed to when we're just supporting one another as best as we can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's the, this this is kind of a, some thought provoking um, point that I learned recently. So humans, our brain can understand about 600 words a minute. So we can, our brain can process 600 words a minute. But we can only speak about 150 words a minute on average. So why are we evolved to have this gap, right? Clearly, our brain can understand more and process more, but we are not able to speak that much. So and I don't think this is actually a malfunction or malfunctioning the evolution. There's a reason why. And that means actually we listen from the silence, we listen from the facial expression, we listen from the this nonverbal, um, you know, uh, language, right? And listen from whatever is the the presence from the person too, um, and but then from the person who's uh, speaking or who's uh, being listened to, there's a hu- tremendous uh, understand, tremendous satisfaction or the sense of well-being that comes from being listened to that way. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's so right. I, I had the same experience that people who in a very active problem solving sessions, and there are there are sessions that are really dedicated for that too. But in this context, um, when you give when you're given the chance for people to really be listened to, um, that satisfaction is actually nothing compared to uh you know uh, anything else, or even better sometimes than the problem solving sessions. Yeah. So personal board of directors. Uh, how does that work? Give me some of the details. How many people am I inviting and how often do I see them? And am I doing it all together? Like we're all going out to dinner or am I doing it one-on-one? <laughs> so, yeah. So I usually uh, recommend, and I have like a four to five people, five people seems like the right number of people. And then I try to kind of get together um, every, every one of them, like, you know, if, if the schedule allows every quarter. Um and, uh, but if not, then it's okay to also have one-on-one, but checking in every quarter with, uh, with every, every one of them or the people who you think that you want to talk to them out of those board of directors. Um, and I, I try to be really, really, um, st- kind of a structure in terms of the agenda. And then the agenda would be like what I'm really struggling with right now. And then, and then kind of a really have a deep thought about it and then bring that kind of a struggle to the, this board of directors and then share their, uh, pers- ask them to share their perspective. The rule here is that it doesn't, the, what, I guess this is also a different thing from the regular board of director meeting <laughs> is that, um, the, it's not, you don't have to act on it necessarily. Uh, it's a, you can take it with a grain of salt. Um, and, uh, and then also, so there's a certain freedom that I can, I, can, I don't have to act on it. But at the same time, usually because there's no, uh, responsibility, like obligation, um, use the, the advice feels more, um, somehow like better than actually what I was thinking. <laughs> um, and so, and so the important part here is that they're not actually working directly on the work that I'm doing. So they, there's a certain distance. So they can actually be very more, um, much more, um, honest and frank too. 
So in my case, for the board of directors, what I'm really looking for is that there are um, really candid feedback that can make me feel more courageous. That's what I ask for. So it's also important for me what, when I ask for the feedback or advice that uh, um, kind of what I'm, what I'm asking for them uh, as a challenge for myself too. Um, so one of the areas that I really struggle a lot is that kind of self-compassion and then feeling confident about what I do. And I really uh, try to bring that up and then how can I actually uh, help myself to see myself as, as is without actually dis- discounting too much. And then my board of directors would actually really give me honest feedback about it uh, and then really correct me whenever I actually make any kind of uh, verbal mistakes or like, you know, any, any, um, any decisions that I make uh, in that way, then they would actually really point that out. And I can take it more honestly and then openly than other actually people's feedback. Uh, I know that that learning is a big value for you, and and you mentioned a couple minutes ago how important it is for entrepreneurs to to find their values, to identify their values. Mm-hmm. How did you go through that yourself, and 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 what are your recommendations? Um, so there is a I have an interesting. So I think it's the through the um the there are two value exercises I do um. One of them is actually I thought I've done long, I've learned a long time ago, taking the search inside yourself training. And um, when I first took the training, it was like 2016 or 17. And one of the part of the exercise was to write the value uh, based on the people that I admire. Um, so if you, if I ask anyone, what's your value? It's really hard to answer the question because, um, you know, maybe it's love. It, it could be very superficial too, but not feeling really connected to it. But if you ask, if I ask anyone, who do you admire? Who do you respect the most? And they'll say, oh, my dad or my grandfather or my uh, teacher from the third grade. They can actually talk about it on and on. And then if you think about like, okay, there are five people that I admire. And then what are the things that these people share as qualities? Then that's, that can actually speak to my values too. So I did exercise a while ago, but in that time, 26 for the first time. And I, for the first time in my life, I realized, oh, these are my values that I really care about. It might not manifest in my life right now, but I really deeply care about it. Um, so I do that exercise regularly because it also changes too. It depends on the circumstances or life stages. Um, so that's something that I try to really think about and then really kind of ground myself on. And if I see that I'm kind of a, what I'm doing or what I think about, what I, where I want to go is actually not really in line with it, then I kind of ask myself why. Maybe there's a reason, but so it doesn't have to be always like perfect alignment, but um, I think the having the value is almost like a, you know, um, it, it, it works as a kind of compass. Um, so it kind of gives me where, how far I am off, uh, from where I want to be. And then if there's a, a gap, then, you know, what, the, what the reason is for the gap. So it, it really makes me uh, be conscious about or intentional about what I do and how I do things. Um, the other thing that I do recently was that in the workshop, uh, one, one challenge for this value exercise, or um, based on that kind of thinking about the future that we really envision, um, one challenge is that our inner critic keeps like coming in, sabotaging us that, no, you're, you'll never be able to live in alignment with your values. You'll never be able to like live up to your dream, whatever. That's so, for me, it's very active. And for, there are a lot of people who are actually, actually have a very active saboteurs <laughs> internally. So, what I this what I started actually uh, incorporating into the the program that I actually run is that 
using the ChatGPT too. So using the AI, as you asked, uh, if, if with the prompt, pro, uh, proper prompts, uh, and ask the AI to, um, to can create the feature that you want, actually does do it because AI, ChatGPT doesn't have the ego at the moment. <laughs> so it doesn't filter anything. It doesn't censor. It just, okay, based on your inputs that you want, this is a feature that you want. So I, I did an exercise recently about, uh, imagine that I give my, I, I, myself that I, I give a TED talk in five years and imagining that everything goes in the way that I want it. And here are the things that I hope that I can do. And then I wouldn't be able to write my own TED talk based on that because I keep like judging myself. But GPT-4 were able to do it beautifully. <laughs> and I was reading and I was like, oh my God, this is so awesome. <laughs> yes, this is what I want. So there's also another way to get the support from the technology. And I think this was one good uh, usage of the artificial intelligence. So, so chat GPT doesn't have the baggage that humans do, or to put it another way, uh, it has a beginner's mind. Yeah. Beginner's mind. I like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's really interesting. The The values exercise that I've done in the past is is based on John Demartini's book, The Values Factor. Yeah. And really interesting. So one of my core values is freedom. And I find mm-hmm. that anytime I'm not doing something that's, you know, helping me pursue that path, it gets very full of friction. And even just laying them out and being clear on, on what they are mm-hmm. uh, is extremely helpful, you know, more as a method of, of, um, making decisions or being aware of where I'm spending time, you know, not, yeah. not necessarily that we can be doing it a hundred percent of the time, but more, okay, I see it and I see when I'm in or out of alignment. I can also feel if my energy is going up or if my energy is going down based on mm-hmm. that as well. So I think that's a really, uh, a really powerful thing. And, you know, many, many entrepreneurs, they, they value freedom. Uh, many entrepreneurs value creativity so mm-hmm. learning and growth, for example, uh, are really important. Uh, obviously, a lot of entrepreneurs are also looking for uh, wealth and money and abundance, which is important one. And so those are those are the ones that I've seen come up most often. And if, if you live in them, then great, you can sort of be guided by that. And if you're not, then you have this invisible thing, you know, running you, and you're wondering why you're out of alignment exactly. or why you're feeling a certain way. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing that kind of, as I listen to you, one thing that comes up for me is that, um, you know, entrepreneurship people think about it, uh, the bright side of it, and there are a lot of good bright sides too. But one out of 10 or one out of 20 startups where the entrepreneurship uh, goes to, uh, only those are successful. And then most of them are successful as in like in terms of financial success. Um, so it's not my measure of success necessarily, entirely. Um but if you look at the startups, it's a, it's a harsh environment and it's actually not the logical decision to make if you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to live a sustainable life. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of uh, pain in it too. And, um, as, uh, as they do that, I think it's really important to, um, to think about what's, yeah, what, as you, as you talked about, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, and does this actually matter for me? And if the answer becomes no, then actually, you know, we are, we are, we should be able to kind of stop. Um, but yeah, a lot of people actually uh, sometimes can go like kind of autopilot. Um, and, um, and that's not, that's not how we want to be, um, you know, in life in general. So yeah. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the, the main trade off that the entrepreneur is making is, am I living a meaningful life? Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, so so just as a, as background, I got my MBA from INSEAD in 2005, so that was mm. 18 years ago. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur for most of that time, uh, doing several different projects, and I have I have peers, friends of mine, who are in the same job, mm-hmm. right, or maybe not same job, but same company since we got our MBAs in 2005, mm-hmm. and. To them, you know, it probably meets their values and, and, you know, kind of how, what they want to be doing in the world. But to me, that would not work at all, right? If my value yeah. is freedom and creativity and growth, uh, and those are my recipes for a meaningful life, then I have to be viewing it through that lens. And yeah, there are going to be trade offs that exist in the world. And it's like, fine. And most entrepreneurs will say, I accept those trade offs. In fact, I cherish those trade-offs. I want to do that, you know, <laughs> because I want to be in command of my life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was a uh, in one of the programs that I re- um, offered, facilitated that. There was a question from the VC investors. He was telling me um, in the world where there is a successful entrepreneur such as Elon Musk, um, I. I, I'm kind of conflicted what I should encourage uh, my portfolio company uh, founders. Um, he's clearly successful uh, for the work and that he works 100 hours a week and uh, he sits on the floor of his office. So seems like that's a good formula. Uh, and so I cannot really say that, you know, take care of yourself <laughs> because that, that will pay off. And I, and I had to tell him that, well, you don't know whether actually that's the secret to his success. He, if you look at the business that says Tesla or the SpaceX, he gets a lot of government subsidy too. So he's in a good system actually for the business that he wants to run. And of course it's driven very smart, but there's nothing he can do by himself. Um, he needs collaborator. He needs employees. He needs teams to work together with. Um, so that's so for something to think about. What is actually the the direct reason for his success? It's not necessarily because of what he's doing necessarily. And does that matter to you? Like, do you want to live like that? Um, do you want to do you want your uh, portfolio company's uh, founders be be living that kind of a life and then successful? Is that what you care about? And he said, No, I want them to be happy. And so then it's not yours. Um, so yeah, but then I think a lot of times in our industry, like tech. Not beyond actually entrepreneurship in tech industry, there's a, almost like a one narrative that's so dominant and people think that that's the only way to go and that should really stop. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the, the hustle culture narrative. And if you think back, so you were at the conscious entrepreneurship summit. Uh, mm-hmm. I need to, I need to say that again. You were at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit in June, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. remember there was that discussion with the VC panel. So it was Matt mm-hmm. McCall of, yeah. uh, of of Forge Capital. It was Tim Chang of Mayfield and yeah. Lisa Mickelson of Flourish Ventures. And they're sitting there saying, hey, we need to be supporting the full picture of the entrepreneur. We need to dr- let them drop this idea that you know working yourself bare bones is is what it's all about. We need mm-hmm. to not be in adversarial relationships with the founders that we support. We need to be in supportive relationships with those with the founders that we support. We need to help them do their work. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons is right now they're only working on you're only working on a certain snapshot. You're only working on a certain project. But you're a whole mm-hmm. person and you have a past, a present, and a future. Mm-hmm. And so I might have an experience now, but as a VC, 
if I'm pushing them and I break the relationship and it doesn't work, I may not have access to whatever they do in the future. And right. if I can, if I can help them be great now and be even greater in the future, then what does that do for my returns? So it's really mm-hmm. interesting at the event to hear, you know, really accomplished and serious VCs talk about that and what that, what that means to them. And so I think that comes back to your point, you know, you're looking at an entrepreneur and, and we always see these entrepreneur hero stories, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I worked to my, I worked, till I was almost dead and look at how successful I am and so on and so forth. And it's like, well, yeah, but look at the destruction you left in your wake, you know, or look at what happened to your health or your marriage or your, you know, mental health or you know, whatever it is, um, as yeah. you were going through that and seeing that the full picture, I think is such a critical element. Yeah, I well said. And that was actually the session, one of my favorite sessions from the summit too. Um, I, I talked to a lot of VCs too, so that I can uh, kind of bring this sense of, uh, well-being, cultural well-being to the startup communities and startup, uh, the portfolio companies, et cetera. Not as a like good to have, but as a must have, uh, and uh, in a way kind of ingredients, critical ingredient for the, their return investment too. And then, but then I also, so I actually meet a lot of these investors who are deeply caring about it. And, um, there are not that many yet, but there are, there are definitely some of them. And then it was really good to see them actually talking about it really consciously there. And I think that's really kind of speaking to the conscious entrepreneur that you, and every, every speaker was bringing, um, together at the summit, um, that, you know, I, I, when I think of a conscious entrepreneur, the, the kind of a quote that I, that always, I will always remind myself of is that Bill O'Brien, so the former CEO of the Hanover Insurance, he said the success of an, an intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. And you can, you can replace intervention or intervener as entrepreneurship too, a successful, Success of an entrepreneurship depends on the interior condition of the entrepreneur too. And I think it's so true. Um, and then, and then when you are conscious of that, when you're really, uh, aware of the interior condition and they really cultivate it, then everything kind of flows from that place really well. Like, uh, some people think that conscious entrepreneurship as a, something like a moral, uh, from the moralistic perspective that you do the right thing, like ethical decisions. That, that's part of it, but that's partial. But when, when one is actually deeply rooted with the, and aware of the inter- interior condition, then we get to make the ethical decisions very naturally. And we get to make this for more collective, not just for myself. Um, so yeah, I, I think, and, and it needs actually everybody's support, including the VCs. So that session was really critical um, for me from the summit. That's a great definition of conscious entrepreneur. So, so say that one again, give us the soundbite version of that and, and, and remind me of the person who said it. Yeah, so the, it's, called, it's called the success of an intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. It's uh, by the former CEO of Hanover Insurance, uh, Bill O'Brien. So he turned around Hanover Insurance and he was one of those uh, leaders that I really admire in the business world. And obviously someone who worked on themselves. Yeah, clearly. If he's yeah. a big believer in the in the internal, in the, uh, internal condition. Um, yeah. And so... So as we, as we wrap up here, Miru, what are, what are some of the things that you do for your internal condition? You mentioned mm-hmm. that you meditate. You've obviously had a major series of career changes, uh, recently, but like, you know, what are your daily support systems for you? Um, yeah. So I do, I do meditate. Um, I also, 
So the first thing I do is meditation. I, I, and again, system wise, I create a very easy system. So right next to my, uh, our bed in my, our bedroom, that there's a cushion. So I just go rest it. Um, so there's no like hesitation, <laughs> nothing that stops me. Um, I do meditate and also I do yoga. Um, you, I've been practicing yoga for longer than meditation too. So that's my kind of body movement. Um, and I love running. So running is a form of meditation for me too, like just getting in the flow. Um, and I think it's important to also kind of have a, some sort of art form. And I recently reconnected with uh, writing. Uh, writing has been always the, the form of art that I really deeply connected with. So I love writing and that's also practice uh, for the inter- interior condition. Um, and the most important, and again, like you remind me of the importance of this in your, in the summit, the uh, community. So, uh, and it's not just about like, being busy by connecting with many different people. Uh, it's really about um, finding the people that I feel genuinely connected with in terms of what I care about. And then really keep kind of cultivating the relationship with them by communi- by either contributing to them or helping each other or also getting help from them too. So that community is also another support system that I, I, I really need and help uh, for my interior condition. So that's the ex- external side, but it's an important part of me. And I, I, I like the way you call that out. Community is not the same as networking. <laughs> so no, <laughs> not the same, not the same. Now, when it not comes to your meditation, uh, are you, it sounds like you're a morning person. Uh, what what yeah. kind of meditation do you do? How long do you meditate for? I do in the morning. I usually do about 20 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes. Um, and I've been practicing um, in terms of my I've been practicing it. I've, inside meditation. So, but it's most of the days it's usually like watching my thought. <laughs> oh, that thought came up. Okay. That's interesting. And just, have, just watching my thoughts as it kind of pops up. That's really my practice. I do, uh, uh kind of a settling with the breath practice too, in the beginning. Um, so yeah, that's breath and the watching my thought. That's really all there is. Keep trying to keep it simple. Great. And I know that you, so I know you just did this, uh, 30 day writing challenge, like you were saying, reconnecting to the art that you like. So you, you put a lot of stuff out there. I know you're a big reader, uh, and like to love to learn to, to improve yourself. Mm -hmm. What are some of the top books or resources that you recommend to people who are trying to become more conscious and aware entrepreneurs? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this for a bit. There's a, I, I, I fa- get fascinated by the entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurship. It doesn't mean that I get fascinated by my me, but I, I think that the whole human history is basically history of entrepreneurship. If you think about it, um, there are a lot of things that humans started doing from the everything that humans started, like it's an entrepreneurship too, I think. So, um, the book that I recently read that I'm actually still reading that's so fascinating to me is the called What Makes Us Human. Uh, it's written by Ian Thomas. He's a poet. And Jasmine Wang, she's an entrepreneur and also the AI researcher. And also the, the third author is a GPT-3. So they, these two humans, uh, collaborated with GPT-3. What they wanted to write about is that asking GPT-3, uh, questions about spirituality. And so they trained GPT-3. This is before GPT-4 came out. So that's why it was three. And they trained GPT-3 with a text, text from the, like a, religious texts such as um, the Bible, Quran, 
Torah and the Buddhist scriptures, it trained the, the, the GPT-3 and then basically asked a lot of questions about spirituality, such as, why do we suffer? What it, what it, why do we die? Like what happened? How can you explain that that to a three-year-old? Things like that. So it's a collection of that answer. And then it's almost like reading a Zen book. GPT-3 answers amazing questions to these difficult questions, amazing answers to these difficult questions. And it's reading like a Zen book. And, but then what makes me think about it is that it's not that GPT-3 is just fascinating. It's actually, if you think about how this happened, it's because all the, there are a lot of humans in the human history wrote about this. They have experimented. They actually learned their wisdom from that experience and they wrote about it, right? That's what all these texts are. GPT-3 is just kind of a spitting it out in a beautiful compositing way. It's, they, it's doing a good job of it, but it's based on the human wisdom uh, and the human history. And that's, I, I think, history of entrepreneurship too. Um, so it just makes me think about what our connection to this technology these days and what it means actually to be human um, and how this collective wisdom is so amazing. So that's the book that I want to somehow recommend. Um, and um, there is a, a podcast that I really have been enjoying recently more than before. It's called uh, The Courageous Life. Um, it's by Joshua Steinfeld. And he is a mindfulness teacher and also facilitator and has been running this podcast for five years, having great conversation with many thinkers, teachers. And what he's really focusing on is how can you stay courageous in diff difficult times, in any times too. And I'm, I'm mentioning this because for the conscious entrepreneurs, um, because a lot of things feel counterintuitive to what's known as entrepreneurship. Um, so what we are trying to do as a conscious entrepreneurs might seem like counterintuitive to what uh, entrepreneurship is viewed in the in society, right? So it's actually, it requires extra courage for us to be who we want to be and then really stay grounded. Um, so um, I really recommend that podcast because it, it does have a, provide a lot of good wisdom. And also he runs a practicing courage uh, community too. So it's a good community to join. Courage is certainly a very important word for entrepreneurs. You got to have it by the bucket load. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Hey, Miru, I'm so glad that you are taking people and culture out there and bringing it to the world and helping entrepreneurs uh, along their journey. And you're a leading light uh, to everyone. And I'm so glad that you were able to join us today on The Conscious Entrepreneur. So thanks for being here, Miru Kim. And we really appreciate everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. Likewise, everything back at you, Alex. Thanks. We'll see you again soon. See you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur. If you're ready to go deeper into working on yourself, check out the upcoming events, articles, and resources on our website, which is ConsciousEntrepreneur.us. I'd also really like to thank the team at Hivecast for producing this episode. If you run a podcast and are looking for an awesome full-service production company, make sure to check out Hivecast.